1: Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1 800 Gambler 24 7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services.
2: CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations
3: for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it, most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point, and there are a lot of products and
2: hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio.
0: This time, a former Suns player who you might remember
5: as T-Rex. More
1: video in just a moment, but this is Rex Chapman's Mugshot, and we are
3: learning a lot more about the Charges.
5: And if I was in a situation today
3: where somebody tried to jump on
5: Matt and I had to use my gun again, I'd do it again.
3: You know, it was either going to be me or you. And whether that meant basketball, fighting, hard foul, I was trying to eat.
5: We were scrutinized on TV. We was talked about on TV. We were shown being arrested on TV and taken to jail on TV. Not the fan. We were.
2: Stevie, I got a feeling I know what the tears are about. But what are they about? Welcome to Charges with me, Rex Chapman. I am very excited to announce that not only will this be our first episode with two guests at one time, it will also be our first two-part episode series. That's how engrossing and important my conversation was with my guests, Steven Jackson and Matt Barnes. They are men who are both NBA champions and award-winning podcast professionals with their show All the Smoke from Showtime Basketball, Black Effect, and iHeartRadio. Before becoming a pillar in sports media or podcasting, a former athlete needs to check a lot of boxes during and after their career. They must be opinionated, outspoken, charismatic, while having a pinch of calculated and controlled crazy. This is Charges. 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 Welcome to Charges. I'm your host, Rex Chapman. In my day, there really wasn't an outlet for athletes who felt They were misunderstood or had differing opinions or even just didn't want to talk through a filter. Everything had to be done through a mouthpiece. Often that mouthpiece was a journalist, writer, television personality, team or PR rep, someone that was not you, yourself. They didn't know your life, your experiences, and yet they were tasked with trying to take you and your life and turn it into a story. Thankfully, in many ways, it's not like that anymore. The way we learn about athletes has changed. The filter can come off, the fans can get a more intimate experience, and the athletes, they can be themselves. My guests today, well, they made a career out of being themselves on and off the court. They're both NBA champions. They're both known as great teammates, hard workers, and guys who weren't afraid of grinding in their careers. They also have helped pioneer the format of athletes talking to athletes in an unscripted and authentic way with their podcast, All The Smoke. It's my pleasure to welcome Steven Jackson and Matt Barnes to charges. How are you gentlemen? Welcome to my home court.
5: <laughs> man, charge it up, OG. I'm glad to be here. You know you
3: raised me, so it's only right I be here. Hey, that hey, that was a great opening monologue, man. That was serious, right? That's probably my best introduction ever. I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> there we go. There we go. It's it's all love here. We'll talk about some of the shit, but yeah, we'll talk about the good stuff too, you know. Uh, where did you both grow up? And did you know that basketball was going to take you places professionally? Matt, let's start with you.
3: Uh, I grew up, uh, moved around a little bit. Uh, you know, dad sold drugs, so we bounced around a little bit from the Bay Area up to Sacramento. Um, I was actually a football player first. You know, I grew up playing football, watching my dad play football. He used to play tackle football on the street. And I, as I got taller, I started kind of picking up basketball. So I didn't really take basketball serious. Until maybe the end of junior high. I mean, I was always playing in leagues, but just you know, football was always my heart, my passion. Um, in high school, was an all-American in, in football and basketball, and just felt like there was going to be some more longevity in basketball. Um, although my career to get started was a grind and a roller coaster—shit, actually, my whole career was a was a grind and a roller coaster. But you know, once I after that 2006-7, uh, we believe team, I kind of became a household name. But um, you know, basketball. Up until college was kind of it was really you know what do you want to do football or basketball so again chose basketball had a fifteen year career and uh, man I've been able to pivot out of that into media so it's been a fun grind
2: amazing how how uh, what position in football
3: I was a receiver so yeah uh, receiver I led the nation in touchdowns my senior year you know, had like 53 catches for 1200 yards and 28 touchdowns. So like every Damn. other catch was a touchdown. So literally football was my first sport, but, and was recruited by everyone uh, for football too. But like I said, looking at the longevity at the time, you know, coming out of high school in 97, 98, there wasn't any six, eight receivers. So I didn't really have anything to model <laughs> myself after. I kind of understand if there was going to be some longevity in this space. Although Harold Carmichael, you know, back in the eighties uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles, but outside of that, there wasn't really guys my size doing what I did. So I took the other route where there was plenty of guys my size doing it and, and made a career out of it. Nice.
2: Jack, what about you, Jack?
5: OG, oh, uh, it started for me. I was born and raised in uh, Houston in the Third Ward area. Uh, rest in please, George it. Um, But I was raised in Port Arthur, Texas, about an hour and a half away. My mom moved to Port Arthur when I was like four or five years old. And, um, you know, the, the saying, you the slang rock I have a wicked jump shot. Um, I grew up in that type of area. And um, I didn't know I was talented until um, that I had a chance. Until I was like eight, nine, and I played in a game at the YMCA. And we had the final score was 44 to 42. I had 42 <laughs> odd points. Everybody around me knew, you know, well, this kid had something. And, and during my career, you know, growing up in Port Arthur, Texas, I did so many things that could have ruined my life that could have stopped me from making it this far. But my city, Pull out the Texas, the people in my city took care of me because they saw something in me that I didn't as a youngster. So I give a lot of props to my city for protecting me and shielding me from, from all the trouble and drama that was going on in my city. And um, my family put me in positions to you know, go to Oak Hill. I won a state championship and in out to Texas in my high school. Then I went to Oak Hill, um, ended up uh, signing with the University of Arizona and not getting in in school because I didn't pass my test because I didn't take school serious, and they ended up winning the national championship my freshman year. Yeah, so I, I ended up missing out on national championship Arizona, but the bet the, it was a blessing. God always had his, uh, his um, hands over me, and always had me covered. During that year, my baby mom didn't want me to go back to Port Arthur because she knew the trouble and the, and the gangbang bang and all the stuff that I was into as a kid, and she told me to stay with her. Well, I did not know she had a relationship with the Sons organization, and as you know, uh, she woke me up one morning and brought me down there to play pickup with you guys which I had no idea where I was going. And I ended up playing well, and I ended up getting drafted with the only pick that the Suns had that year, and you were there. so And that's when my career started. But I had no idea or no clue that I would make it to the NBA. But when I got the opportunity, shout out Danny Ainge, when I got the opportunity, I never looked back.
2: Man, it, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. You came down, and, and we had a squad. I mean, this was Steve's rookie year, Nash rookie year. Jason Kidd, KJ, and what stood out, you were the first guy you – It was an and one kind of era, but you were the first NBA player. I remember you came in and you had this move where it was kind of like a crossover, but it would hit, hit the floor and then hit your shin and then hop back up into the same hand. And man, (laughs) we all were dying. Like you made several people fall down and it was just something we had never seen before. But also you were wildly athletic. Uh, You could tell that you were going to be a pro, but you just, you were so young, Steve. So young. Yeah,
5: I had to bounce around. I had to bounce around. Uh, they drafted me and guaranteed me 250000 was a blessing because it changed my life. And I ended up breaking both of my feet. They sent me to the uh, CBA, and I went. they sent me to Australia, and I broke both of my feet and bounced around a couple of years. But I thank the Suns, and I thank y'all, Ritz, because just opening that door for somebody, people don't know. If you just open the door for somebody sometimes, that's all they need. And the Danny Ainge and the Suns, you guys did that for me, man. I'm forever appreciative.
2: Yeah, well, you can't just uh, fake 6'8 and skilled. Hey, that's, what you, <laughs> right. that's what you guys are. That's what you guys are. You're both champs, NBA champs, which is amazing. Uh, especially since you were both second round picks well traveled, uh do you guys talk about that amongst yourselves?
5: uh not much. we don't talk about it. I think uh, for the most part, I think that's what makes us inseparable. That's what makes the respect that we have each other because we both know we've been through the grind. you know we don't need applause from the outside audience for us to know what we went through to get to where we at. You know we know we know the grind we've been through and, and it's respected between brothers. you know, I've been with Matthew some tough times in his life. he's been around me through some tough times in my life, so knowing that we both went through the grind knowing that nothing was given we earned everything i think that conversation that we don't need to have because the respect for each other is already there
3: yeah uh you know we don't really sit back again to kind of piggyback off what he said and kind of go down memory lane like i said we knew it was a grind but you know we've transitioned into this space and still kind of being underdogs but really creating our own way similar to what we did in the nba you know neither of us knew we would be in this media space and, and having the success we had, you know, we were both respectively working for ESPN and Fox at the time and, you know, just getting a lot of really good feedback. And, you know, someone said, no, you guys need to do something together. And we were like, okay, what is that? And, you know, I hit Jack. I'm like, let's let's do a podcast. And he's like, what's the podcast? I'm like, shit, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, one, one of our guys, uh, E, who's a producer on All the Smoke, he actually filmed, um, he did a DeMarcus Cousins documentary, and I spoke on it. And after it, we were just kind of chopping it up, and that's what I was doing. And, you know, we talked about the uh, possible podcast. He's like, you need to talk to Showtime. They have a, a Showtime basketball they're about to launch. You guys would be perfect. So, you know, I kind of took that, ran with it, kind of just dry pitched uh brian daly kind of with my vision and who my partner was at the time they didn't understand like where jack would fit they're like it's just you i'm just like no it's me and jack like so jack comes on sometimes i'm like no jack is my co-host to this show and this is how it's going to work and if it jack's not my co-host i can't do it you know what i mean so they learned jack quick fell in love with him quick and understood what i saw in him and you know now you know, a little bit over a year year in the space, man. We, we've come in and, and won sports podcast of the year from iHeart last year and nominated for a bunch of uh, different awards this year. So, you know, definitely humbled by the experience, but just kind of excited because, like you said in your opening, it's always been other people telling our stories, and now we have the ability to tell our own stories. And, uh, you know, have the ability for other players to feel comfortable enough to let them walls down because, you know, Rex, we'll tell you shit we would never tell a reporter and vice versa. And that's the kind of comfortability we want to be able to bring to our guests because we feel like that's when you get the realest stories. So I know that wasn't really the question. I know the question was, do we talk about championships? But I kind of just took you in the process of, you know, we understand that was the first chapter of our life and now we're looking forward to moving forward in new businesses and new spaces. We have new deals coming to us every day, man. So we've definitely been blessed to be able to, play basketball for a living, which is crazy, make good money, and now be in this media space and be able to talk shit, have fun, and make good money as well.
2: Man, I'm happy for you guys, of course, but I'm proud because, you know, for you, retiring is scary. It just is. It's something you've done since you were five years old and been serious about it. If you played in the NBA uh, for 10, 15 years, you've been serious about this from before you even thought you were being serious about it. So I'm just proud that you guys are showing these younger guys that, hey, you know do right try to do right get out and they're still earning potential for you after you're done matt barnes and stephen jackson both played 14 seasons in the nba on eight and nine teams respectively you don't last that long on that many teams unless you have skill passion and undeniable leadership traits. Steven won his NBA championship in 2003 with the San Antonio Spurs, while Matt won his title in 2017 with the Golden State Warriors. Both were key cogs in the rotation. This dynamic duo captained the we-believe Golden State Warriors in the 06-07 season. In true underdog fashion, that team became the third eighth seed to beat a one seed in a seven-game series. Watching them then and hearing them now, you knew that they were destined to lead on and off the court. Matt, you, your your career fascinated me because you played everywhere, but every fucking team you were on, you started on. You right, wouldn't even right. be in the league for a second. And all of a sudden they'd start you go to some place <laughs> and, and you're a starter. Yeah. At what point in your NBA career did you feel like you had cemented your place in the league?
3: Um, I would probably say I mean, the journey, you know, being drafted, cut, going to the D-League for a year, then being able to play for the Clippers, I, I came into the Clippers situation biting my way for 10 days and making that. And I think where I made a mistake, although it was not a mistake at the time because I was so young, was, you know, being from Sacramento, that's back in the early 2000s when C-Webb and Bibby, at first it was Jason Williams, they had those really good Sacramento teams. So I'm going to school at UCLA, like the only one on campus, like, although Lakers are my favorite team, I'm rooting for Webb and the Kings, you know what I mean? So at that time... I'm working out with him every summer, hanging out with them, being mentored by him. So instead of re-signing a two-year deal after my first year with the Clippers, I jumped to Sacramento. I'm just like, shit, this is a good team, my hometown. This team has a chance to win a championship. I'm going to go here. And then, you know, Webb gets traded to Philly, and so begins kind of my marathon where I don't play for two years there and then finally get a chance in Golden State. So I think I kind of got my foot in the door in Golden State, but the even with Golden State – My dumbass turned down to after Nelly gave me an opportunity, I turned down a three year, twelve million dollar offer because I came off the playoffs where I'm hearing Kenny and Charles, oh this guy's gonna get, you know, twenty to thirty million and I'm hearing all these numbers from these experts. I'm like, shit, I'm about to get paid. What? So that's uh, that ego. That's that ego talking to you. You know? Especially because, you know, I'm bouncing around and not even really sure if I'm going to be playing. And then you hear 20, 30 million dollars I me, shit. And then Golden State offered me 12. I'm like, nah. So I took a one-year deal with Golden State for 4 million, which pissed off Nelly. Then the next year my mom dies and then Nelly stops fucking with me. So the journey began, you know. So I kind of felt like I, I got myself in the door in 2007. But it was still a few years of one-year auditions after that until I really got my first multi-year deal with a little bit of money to it. What about you, Jack?
5: Uh, I think for me, um, it was when I got to San Antonio and I, I was able to start on the championship team, uh, coming into San Antonio, I had made the rookie team in New Jersey the year before, but coming back after the rookie game, I was leading all rookies in scoring. Byron Scott just stopped playing me, stopped starting me. So I didn't play the rest of the year. So my confidence was down. Uh, but during that season, I remember I, one of the, when we played San Antonio in Jersey, Mike Brown snuck over there when I was in my street clothes, cause Byron wasn't playing. He was like, keep your head. We come and get you. And you know, I heard that before, but I didn't know how serious it was. Uh, that summer, I, uh, they brought me to summer league. I ended up playing, uh, get signed with San Antonio. First year, I was on the engine list, but the second year, I played, and I played like 17 games off the bench. Uh, we were in Seattle, and uh, getting ready to play Seattle. And Tim Duncan, I mean, pop calls in my room, tells me to come upstairs. That's that principal office call. I'm like, oh, they finna cut me. Somebody finna, I'm finna get cut or what? So, when I get up there, it's Tim Duncan is sitting in the room. And Pop was like, you averaging 18, you averaging 15, 16, something like that off the bench, we're going to start you. And that was my moment that I knew, okay, I'm here to stay now. Tim Duncan, David Robinson, Greg Popovich, this legacy, I'm a part of this legacy, I have a chance to win a championship and I'm a starter. Uh, OG, that's exactly when I knew I was here to stay and my life changed uh, ever since I started on that championship team with the Spurs.
2: Isn't that amazing, though? I have a couple of – Moments like that in my career, where I look back and and this person or that person who I really respected, and I'm glad you said that because you had gone and done your thing in Jersey. You're playing for Byron, right? Byron Scott at the time. Uh, Yeah, Byron Scott at the time. Yep. But when you went, I was skeptical when you went to the Spurs because that's Pop, and Pop has a certain way. But when you showed that you could do that and you could play how pop wanted you to treat the game integrity character knowing time and score all that stuff once i saw you could do that i knew you were on your way i mean you, you were going to be undeniable
5: it, hey, hey rex it was tough though i bet it was tough I because bet. you know you know you know me where i come from he like i make one mistake he'll pull me out the game and at times i didn't know how to handle that but i had steve kerr i had steve smith i had kevin willis i had i had those guys that had my back that when i come out the game blowing up if i didn't have those veterans i would and I wouldn't have made it and I'll be the first to say it because they had experience. They taught me how to be a man. They taught me how to be a professional and I needed that at the time and that's the only reason I made it in San Antonio. Rex, I
3: think that's one thing not to cut you off that is missing from today's game because The game is so young. You know, you look at last year where Steph Curry is the oldest player on the Warriors and he's only 32. You know, when you came in the game, when Jack and I came in the game and Jack gave you a perfect example, you need those veterans. Even if they're not getting consistent minutes, even if they're not this, they serve their purpose and, you know, possibly save Jack's career. I know I've had vets in my ear, like I just mentioned C-Webb earlier, that kind of talk me off the, the edge at times. And I think that's what the game is missing because... You know, now the game, the kids are making more money than ever and they have no real guidance. They're not listening to no one that's off the court because they don't know what the fuck it's like on the court. So you need those vets in the locker room that can get through to some of these younger players and help them in this transition. You know, you're going from a boy to a man in a man's game on and off the court in life with money and with the game. So I really think. You know, the game is missing that veteran leadership. You know, I want to say probably Udonis Haslam, and if he retires this year, you know, he's kind of like the last real OG uh, in the game now because now the game is so young, and I really feel like you're missing uh, that veteran leadership. Even if it doesn't always show up on the court with their production, it definitely shows up in the locker room and helping these young players in this tough league.
2: Yeah, you know, I, it makes me feel good to hear you say that. You know, C-Webb talking you down, because I remember the day, C-Webb, I, he was a rookie. He was my little guy and who I talked okay, c Web yeah. down, you know, for years. Uh, right. he, his right. first couple years, he and Juwan straight out of, you know, Michigan. So Your
3: tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. Go to lifelock.com slash iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at lifelock.com slash iHeart. Identity theft protection starts
4: here. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History class.
2: So oh, I, I get that. Uh, for both of you, which teammate or coach did you learn the most uh, from as you transitioned from a young player uh, into season vet?
5: Uh, for me, the player that meant the most to me was Stephon Marbury. My first year, I remember uh, I had never been out of Texas, and i never been on the East Coast like that. And I showed up with uh, – and you know, in Texas, we wear a lot of heavy starch in our clothes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we could take our jeans off and just stand up by themselves, right? So I got off the plane with my Stars Down Jeans and everybody looking at me like, I'm a, like I just got off a UFO. And everybody just laughing at me, pointing at me. As soon as I got there, Steph was like, uh uh-uh, uh, I ain't gonna even let them do this to you. So look, it's not, it's not too many rookies can say this, Matt. Steph took me shopping, spunked by 15000 on me, gave me a Range Rover, then later on gave me an Escalade. And his family just took me in as family. And I learned how to be a professional. And just think, I come into the league, you make the all-star game, you lead all rookies in scoring, then you just don't play the rest of the second half of the season. That's devastating to a kid who worked his way to get up there. So I, I was crushed. I was crushed. But having him having my back, having Kenya Martin there as a rookie, both of us being from Texas, I think Steph really guided me and sheltered me and didn't let the, the organization treat me like crap. But coach-wise – I would have to say nobody believed in me more than Don Nelson. Don Nelson allowed me to be a captain on the team. Don Nelson gave me the best compliment that any coach could ever give me. They asked Don Nelson, "What does he like about Steven Jackson and how would he want his team to be? He said, if I could have a team full of Steven Jacksons, I'll be fine. He's one of the winningest coaches ever. So for him to give me that compliment, for him to allow me to be a captain after everything I've been through in my career and believe in me, uh, Don Nelson is my guy
3: for sure. Mm, dope. Um, I would say C Webb. You know, I briefly mentioned him earlier, but he was someone even in the summertime when I was in college, I'd, you know, come back and, and pick up with him. He'd invite me to his house, just kind of big brothered me. Uh, fast forward to us playing together. He gets traded to Philly. I'm a throw in. And, you know, this is, you know, he felt like his window was shut and they threw him to Philly to die. So, you know, we really, and, and we discussed this, uh, you know, when we had him on the podcast. We really leaned on each other during that time. I'm young. I'm 22, 23, you know, looking up to Webb and seeing how he moves not only on the court but off the court with business and, and keeping your mind right and keeping the media out of your business and, and doing all kinds of things. So he really kind of taught me how to be not only, uh, you know, think as a basketball player and overcome shit, but really kind of taught me how to move off the court as well, how you're supposed to carry yourself, you know, watch the potholes to avoid, you know, get have some business acumen and understand that this is a marathon, this is a journey. And uh you know, similar to Jack where I'm, you know, I am I play with the Clippers. I play with Sacramento. I go to Philly and don't play at all. You know, so this is with obviously AI, a young Andre Iguodala, a young Kyle Korver, uh, a rookie in Lou Williams, young Sam Dallenbear. So I'm just like, damn, I should definitely somehow be in here getting some rotation minutes. But you know, Cheeks just wasn't fucking with me. So, you know, it was really tough for me to just kind of keep my head there mentally. Um, so much to the fact that I started working out for football, because, again, I was a you know a football player. My agent's like, hey, you know, there's a handful of NFL teams that if you feel you're ready to step to basketball that are waiting to give you an NFL tryout. So Webb was someone just like, you know, kind of supportive. But at the same time, like, man, I you know, you got what it takes to play in this league. You know, just stick with it, keep working and you're going to get your shot. And when you get your shot, be ready. Um, so, Webb was my OG vet. I owe a lot to him, you know, my big brother. And then again, same same thing as Jack. Um, the coach that really gave me my first chance and really believed in me. Although I played with the Clippers, I played with Sacramento, you know, coming two years out of Philly, there was, the phone wasn't ringing. I'm sitting up in Sacramento like, Dan, what's my next move? I get a call from Baron Davis. You know, yo, we got a pickup game in the Bay. So that's only about an hour and a half drive. I hop in my car, go down there and play play really well, not knowing the whole time Don Nelson is watching. So he comes down after and puts his Hey, son, you know, where are you going? You look really good today. What are you doing? I'm just like, shit, coach, I don't know. You know, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't have no teams right now. And he's like, you know, we got 16 guarantees and we're inviting three guys to camp, but you could be our 20th guy. And he's like, I can't promise you nothing, but if you go out there and play like you played today, I promise I'll give you a chance. And I'm like, shit, okay. The head coach is saying he's giving me a chance. That's all I need. So I end up playing my way through the three guys they invited two of the guys on contracts they cut and ended up playing so well that they felt like they can trade Dunleavy and Troy Murphy. And that's how we ended up getting Jack to Golden State. Jack and Al came to Golden State because of the way I was playing. They felt like, okay, we need to add more. Um, let's go get these guys. And we can, you know, even though we gave these young guys and Murphy and Dunleavy some money, Matt's playing well enough and playing their positions where we can go out and get something else. And that's when we went and traded for Jack. So, Nelly was definitely my guy, but then again, like I said, I pissed him off from not taking that three-year deal. So the next year, he kind of fucked me. So he was my best, and then kind of my worst, <laughs> you know, all within, all within all within a two-year span.
5: Nelly said, "You ungrateful son of a bitch!" For
3: real. No, he, he I told got me you here,
5: you want to take this money?
3: One day, he told me he he pulled he pulled me to the side. He's like, he he told me, and I'm telling you, so I lost my mom at the beginning of this next season. So I didn't sign a contract. I signed, a, I think, a one-year, four and a half million-dollar uh, contract. So I'm going through it. I lose my mom at the end of November. So, you know, the season starts November 1st. End of November, my mom dies, so I'm already fucked up. So once it kind of starts feeling a little bit better, mid-January, end of January, early February, motherfucking Nelly pulls me outside after practice. He's like, you know something? He's like, I'm glad you didn't sign that long-term deal. And I'm like, damn, what's this? He's like, because your time here is up. I'm like, damn, what the fuck? What the fuck is going on? And the motherfucker stuck to his word, bro. I didn't play pretty much the rest of the the season. So, again, he was the one that gave me a chance. And then he also snatched that motherfucker from me, too. Are
2: y'all cool now?
3: Yeah, I mean, I have. it's the business. And like I said, Rex, at the time, I, I'm, I'm thinking like, yo, why is he tripping on me? But then I'm also thinking now that I'm older and think back, like this man gave me a real opportunity to play in this league and then offered me my first real money, and I said no to it. So he's probably thinking like Jack just said, the audacity of this motherfucker right here. You right. know what I mean? So yeah. it's water under the bridge. You know, like I said, I always be uh, have love for Nelly. But like I said, it didn't really end the way I wanted it to. But, you know, to this day, we're still cool. foul and Ibaka throws and then Barnes shoves Ibaka the officials better get in the middle Ibaka very hot as is Barnes
1: well Steven Jackson just blew his top second technical of the game and he's gone eight seconds to play Barnes down the lane and rejected by an <laughs> okay, <man. laughs> Barnes doesn't like that. take that now and Barnes heads into the locker room he'll go looking for him. the whole security is
5: back there
2: all right, well, guys, I'm going to change gears for a second on the charges. You know, we focused on the best times, obviously, but while also reflecting on the most, you know, rough patches that made us who we are today. You've both had your share of run-ins with the law. Uh, you both were at, at times in trouble with and while in the NBA. And in a lot of ways, you've been known for being tough guys who aren't afraid to get after it. Do you agree with that perception? You know, Stevie, let's start with you.
5: Yeah, I just didn't like the gangster title they tried to put on me. I've never been a gangster. I've been, I'm always been a man. And I've always been somebody who had my brother's back and, and not worry about the consequences. And that's just been me. That's how I grew up. My older brother was killed when uh, probably four minutes away from me. And was, there was nothing I can do about it. So that haunted me in my whole life. And I always vowed to be my brother's keeper. I'd do anything for my brother. So um, the gangster title was never me. I've done some gangster shit in my life. Mm-hmm. Let's keep it real. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm, name, name another NBA player that's been in the shootout while he was in the NBA. But I'm not that person now. You know, um, everything I've been through... As far as on basketball court, what people don't understand, Rex, I've never been in a fight in an NBA game with an NBA player in my whole career. You know, the only only incident I had was when they threw a beer on my teammate. And, yeah, they were supposed to get their ass whipped because they shouldn't be throwing stuff on players. So, And I I don't regret hitting that fan at all. I regret losing $3 million behind it. But if that happened today, they wouldn't have took our money and we wouldn't have got suspended with all the stuff that's going on today. But um, I didn't mind it because I played the game with that passion. I played the game – uh, like I was willing to die to get a win. And that's why I had a good career. You know, I knew I wasn't as talented as some guys, but I knew that I cared more. I knew I was re- I was willing to put more on the line to win the game for them. And that's just the attitude I had. And people respected that all around the league. And that's basically it, man. I, uh, like I said, we all make mistakes. Even with uh being on probation and violating probation, having to do seven days in jail while I was in the n b a that all was a learning lesson for me. Look at me now, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I'm a Muslim now, like all those things made me uh, be, uh perfected me to be the man I am today, and I don't regret any of it man I embraced my journey I embraced who uh everything I've been through, and uh it wasn't a mistake. It was meant for me to go through those things to be able to grow
3: as long as you're evolving who cares
2: I'm with you what about you matt
3: um You know, I kind of say a reputation is earned, whether good or bad. And I think to make the league, there was some shit I just had to do. You know, it was either going to be me or you. And whether that meant basketball, fighting, hard foul, I was trying to eat. You know what I mean? So I think my reputation early on preceded me because I was someone who wasn't afraid to get physical, you know, kind of at the end of where physicality was really allowed. The early 2000s, there wasn't, you know, it was kind of starting to transition more into you can't touch no one to do nothing. You know, so I was kind of an old school and I would just say I was a football player playing basketball. You know what I mean? And similar to Jack, you know, obviously there's people more skilled, but I felt like no one had more heart than me and I was going to do whatever it took to be on that court. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, Rex bouncing around on different teams and no matter what team I went to, even on the Warrior team, the championship Warrior team I played on, I am either starting or the sixth man or seventh man, the absolute worst, but I'm at least playing 18 to 25 minutes at my lowest point. You know, so my whole thing was a grind and a marathon and I think, you know, in my later years, I kind of was able to kind of shed the perception of me only because of social media. You know, because the, the NBA needed bad guys just like they needed good guys. I kind of felt like You know, I was kind of had the bad guy narrative and then rest in peace to our brother Kobe in that in 2010 when I ball faked him. That was kind of like, okay, you're the bad guy. You're the person we're going to boo in every arena. How dare you fuck with Kobe? This this, and that. So at times it would hurt me because I would be getting all these hateful messages and all this kind of shit. I'm like, damn, I'm not a bad guy. But then at the same time, I kind of flipped the switch like. All right, well, fuck it. You want me to be the bad guy? I'm going to be a bad motherfucker then, so I'm going to be this bad guy. Exactly. I embrace it, and it allowed me to play 14 years in this game, you know, 15 years overall. But, you know, if you want me to be this person to fit this narrative and and, and it allows me to make a bunch of money and and play the game of my dreams, I'm going to do that. So only through... Social media, I feel like myself and Jack that we're kind of able to show the world who we really are. You get to see the other side now. And that's why we enjoy what we do so much from a podcast standpoint, because I think there is narratives that the media may paint now. But now more than ever, we can strip those and we can help other people strip those by allowing them to tell their true stories. Like when me and Jack were first coming up, there was no way we could have said what I just told you because there was not an outlet for it and there wasn't a writer unless there was a writer that really fucked with you that was going to give you that platform or their opportunity to speak your piece. So now that we have... You know, everything we need in front of us, we've been able to kind of shed those stigmas. And we weren't bad people. We just played with a lot of heart, and we're going to do whatever it took to help our team win. You know, I played every game like it was my last because, you know, for my first five or six years, I was on one-year deals. So every game was not only an audition for my team, but it was an audition for the rest of the league. And like I said, it was either going to be me or you, and it wasn't going to be you. So that's kind of the way I looked at it and got a reputation from it. But again, people who take the time to get to know me and fuck with me. You know, they do just that. But if you don't take the time and you just want to throw insults or negative things my way, it doesn't really matter to me because you didn't take the time to get to know me in the first place.
2: My, I, I really am. I'm so happy for you guys. And you guys put this stuff into great perspective. I had on Bonzi Wells, you know, a couple of weeks ago. My brother. Yeah. Yes, my boy. Yes, yeah. Sir. Yeah. And I played against Bonzi, I think, for one year. But. I just wish back in because they called them dudes the jailblazers, guys. <laughs> Crazy. They right? called yeah. them the jailblazers. <laughs> they called them thugs. They called them the jailblazers. And they didn't have anything but a weed charge, if that. Right. I just wish that at the time, Bonzi and Rashid could have had a podcast. Right. Because right. the whole narrative would have changed.
3: And Wallace was fouled, and Wallace did. Oh, Wallace. This has potential to be serious if they don't get between. Steven
1: Jackson and Rasheed Wallace trying to be peace because now Jackson yelling. Jackson
5: challenging Derek Coleman. Somebody should just get Jackson out quickly as possible.
3: Our test is in the stands! Oh, this is awful. Fans are getting involved. Steven Jackson's in the fans. Rasheed Wallace going into the stands.
1: The security trying to somehow restore order.
2: Steve, let's focus on you for just a second. Being involved in that malice at the palace, whatever the hell they call that. <laughs> I spoke with Ron with Meta about it uh, on our second episode. What do you remember about that night and the aftermath for you?
5: Well, going into that game, I knew that was my first year. I just got traded there. You know what I mean? I just signed my big contract, but I knew it was a robbery between the Pistons and the Pacers. I knew I was going into a war zone, Um, but I knew we was a whole different team. I knew what I brought to that team, something that they had missed. And um, coming to that, we knew that, you know, we were one of the best teams in the league. I think we were like 14 and five at the time or something like that. We had a good record. And this was the game to let the NBA know all around the world that this is our year to win the championship. Jermaine was an all-star. Ron was defensive player of the year. Ron was just dominating on both ends of the ball. And I knew I had to come in and be... A smaller run on our test, but not as good. And uh, just been able to shoot threes better. And I came in and played my role. And um, at the end of that game, we were up 15 points, 45 seconds left. And um, my whole attitude was okay, we made our point, let's get up out of here. Um, th- it was some issues from the previous Eastern Conference finals. Like I said, I wasn't there and that I didn't know about. I didn't know it was beef intention, you know, still to the point where guys wanted to still make hard fouls really when the game was over. Somebody put a battery in and Ron's back to get a foul from last year, to get his foul. He's like, you can get your foul now, Ron. We done won the game. And when I heard that, I was at the free throw line. So when I heard that, I instantly guarded Ben running down court. I said, nah, Ron, go get somebody else. I got Ben just so he wouldn't foul him so we can get up out of there and go home and, you know, be the best team in the league at the time. Well, as I'm guarding Ben, the clock, you know how we do Rex and Matt. When when the game is over, when you guard somebody, you don't want the clock to run out. You ain't going to foul him. So I'm token guarding Ben, and I'm just letting him walk to the basket. Rex, just letting him walk to the basket so the clock can run out. Ron comes from out of nowhere and fouls Ben. Now, this is one thing I knew before I even played with the Pacers. I knew what ben, who Ben was. Ben wasn't no punk. He was strong. He was a big old country boy that you don't want to mess with. I knew that off the rip. So when, they, when he fouled him, the first thing I did I was like, oh, man, here we go. And we didn't eventually get in the middle of it until we seen them back far enough apart where they couldn't just go to blows. See, if you look at the tape, we stood there for a minute to see if they was going to lock up first because, you know, Ben got the right to get his get back. And Ron wasn't going to run. That's one thing about us. You know what I'm saying? Back then, if the fire eventually happened and guys lock up, we're going to let them go ahead and get it in right quick. But we're going to break it up. Well, they didn't lock up, so we jumped into it and tried to break it up. Rip Hamilton is my class of 96 brother. We've been tight. Uh, Rasheed is my brother. I looked up to Derek Coleman. But in that moment, if you see if the tensions were so high, we all was getting into it. We all was arguing and pushing back and forth. And after things calmed down, you know, even, even with going in the stands, when the, the punches start being thrown in the stands, Rashid came up there and got me. He came up there to make sure I was straight to get me out the stands because it was too much going on. And uh, it just went bad fast, man. But I think if I can't wait till we all can sit down together because everybody has respect for each other. And it, it was just... The tension from basketball and guys want to be great. The love is still there. I just hate it happened that way for the world to see because, like you said, we went to jail. We lost money. We got to run, Ron. Ron missed out on the championship. That was our championship year. They suspended him the whole season, Rex, because somebody threw a beer at him. And, to, and in today's society, you throw a beer on somebody, that's assault. That's assault. So I hate Ron missed out on the championship. And the biggest thing that I took away from was, we messed up Reggie Millers last year. That was his year to win a championship. That was Reggie's last year, and Reggie felt like he was confident in us to get us that championship, but that one moment ruined our whole year. Damn,
2: damn. you know, there's something going on with fans in the arenas lately, you know, fans spits on Trey Young at Madison Square Garden, at which by the way, I'm in the stands right then and there. If, if I see if, <laughs> I mean, it's not even a debate. if I saw somebody, come on. Come on, that's not even a big You already know, right? Yeah, somebody spits on him. Someone (laughs) then throws a water bottle at Kyrie. Uh, It's starting to get out of hand. Did we learn from the malice at the Palace at all? I mean, how do you think about the relationship between the fans and the players in the arena right now?
5: Well, we didn't learn from that because they only punished us. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? We were scrutinized on TV. We was talked about on TV. We were shown being arrested on TV and taken to jail on TV. Not the fan. We were, and that's all the NBA cared about. They didn't care about us, they cared about their business. And that said a lot at the time. The NBA has to do something about these fans because Mike Tyson said it best. And it's just like on social media. People, social medias make people too confident to say things and do things without getting punched in the mouth. And that's where
3: we at today. I completely agree, completely agree.
2: millions in salary and had him pleading no contest to misdemeanor assault charges stemming from the melee Heading into the 2006-2007 season the Indiana Pacers were still trying to repair their image Some two years after the brawl in Auburn Hills Stephen was 28 years old and during a night off after training camp on Friday October 6th 2006 he went with his pacers teammates to club rio in indianapolis indiana there occurred an altercation that altered his career and almost cost him his life stack tell me about the night of october 2006 you and some teammates went out to a strip club in indiana led to you firing your registered gun and being hit by a car and eventually pleading guilty to a felony count of criminal recklessness, you protected Jamal Tinsley uh, outside of the club from getting jumped, right? Were you in fear for your life at that moment?
5: Yeah, well, well, one thing about it, I was actually, me and Al Harrington had left the club early, and I was pulling out the parking lot Rex. We were in training camp, uh, so me and Al wasn't drinking or nothing that night. We were just going out to, to bond with the team because the whole team was out. Um, And as we were leaving the club, I see Jamal Tisley running out the club and I see three guys following him. Well, by that time, you know, I wasn't the type of guy where it ain't me, I might as well go and keep going. Now I saw him, I backed up, hopped out. Like you said, my gun was registered. As I'm going over there to help him, it's more guys coming out, the club. So, and I seen a group of 30 guys in the club when I was in there, so I know it's more guys coming out. And me being in that position, I'm not gonna let guys run behind me knock me out, and I'm getting stumped out in the parking lot. You know, I, I was prepared for that, so I, I took my gun off and let off some shots, make sure they got away from me. But during that time, one of the guys had got in the car and uh, had already had his idea that he was gonna try to kill me. Um, he zeroed in on me, and as I was running to my car wrecks, he dashed out the parking spot, and then we in a parking lot, by 45 miles per hour in an old-school car. So he was coming so fast, where well, I couldn't get out the way. But the fact that I was sober, the fact that I was, think- I was in my, my right mind I just turned sideways where he couldn't take my legs, because if I'd have stood there, he would have took my legs. I'd probably have been dead or paralyzed for the rest of my life. So I jumped with the car, I jumped a little bit, when my back hit the windshield, and it flipped me up in the air, where I ended up hitting the ground from the momentum of the car, and ended up knocking all my teeth out, where I had to have plastic surgery with no anesthesia for two hours. It was cutting skin off my lip, digging debris out my lips. All my teeth was gone. The most pain I've ever been through in my life. I still, my adrenaline made me stand right up. The car had to do a, a U-turn to get out the parking lot. I take my gun out and unload on him. As Soon as I realized my clip is empty, I pass out and I wake up in the police car. And the only reason I woke up in the, I remember being in the police car because they had Marquise Daniels in cuffs as well at the time. And I'm sitting there, he, he, Marquise think I'm dying because he see my mouth is shattered and, and ripped open and I'm unconscious. So I'm just bleeding. So he's kicking the door. My my team, my, my boy dying in here. Come get him out of here. He think I'm in the car dying. And I come out, I wake up, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I was just out of it, man. And I, I, I didn't know what was going on. But I don't regret that either because I was helping my teammate. Yeah, yeah, my lips still scarred up from that day, but I'm alive. And I think the only reason guard protected me because I wasn't out there just waving a gun on some gangster shit. Like, I wasn't a gangster. I was protecting my teammate. I had a gun license, and I did what I had to do. And if I was in a situation today where somebody tried to jump on Matt and I had to use my gun again, i will do it again.
3: Your teeth look good, though. Now. They do. Look at them. Look like, at yeah, them. Thanks,
5: bro. <laughs> yes, they do.
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, because I, I had a gap at the time, Matt, so that hey, it, it
3: actually was a benefit. And I remember. It. <laughs> but, Rex, I mean, you know mean? Like I said, all that, what he just said, obviously, is crazy, but that's kind of what led him to us. You know, Indiana feels like, okay, well, shit. Okay, this motherfucker's crazy. So we need this. So that's how the world works. He ends up getting traded that season to Golden State. And that's how, you know, our relationship becomes what it is. And we make a historic run that same season and it kind of been kind of shedding the stigma since then. But that's when I spoke earlier. I think, you know, incidents like the malice and incidents like that, the politics of the game is kind of what kept Jack from Acquiring accolades that he definitely deserved whether it be all-stars or first-team all-defense or this kind of shit Because of the trouble he got off off the court and it wasn't him on no bully Waving a gun have fun shit. It was always in defense of his brother So that's why you know, I love this guy and respect him and will do anything for him. It's
2: beautiful
0: I spoke with former NBA player Steven Jackson today. He called George Floyd his twin brother. The two spent a lot of time here in Houston, and Jackson told me he is now making it his life's mission to get justice for his twin.
2: Do you think as athletes but also as black men you have the responsibility to use your platform to talk about the problems in society that uh, haven't been getting enough attention decade after decade, or is it a choice that every person should make for themselves?
5: Yeah, I think it's mandatory because—and it's not just—as a a black man, I think it's mandatory for us, but it's mandatory for everybody that wants equality. Thank you. You know, if you can look at somebody from every race like I can and tell them I love them and mean it just like I can tell you I love you, Rex, and you know I mean it, and I know it's reciprocated from you, you know, then that's how the world's supposed to be. That's the answer— to getting equality. That's the answer to stop all this racism, doing your part. Everybody has a part to play, not just because you're an athlete, not just because you have a voice, but everybody has a part to play in getting this thing right and getting rid of the people who hate, getting rid of racism and stuff like that. But but we have a voice. We have a voice. I didn't ask to be the face of the biggest civil rights movement. I lost a twin. I lost a close friend. It was real pain that put me in that position. I didn't ask to be in that position. But at the same time, I inherited being the voice for other people who don't have a voice. When I went down there, it was a woman named uh, Miss Del Shea Sherelle. Her son had been put in the cell for eight hours and had a pre-existing condition. They left him in there to die. And she had been screaming for help, but nobody heard her until the day we went down there and had that press conference for my brother. So I inherited being other people's voice, but we all have a voice to play. And if you're not out here helping people and trying to help somebody benefit or, or pick somebody up, then what are you doing?
3: I think really it's to each his own, but we feel it a responsibility for us because we have been through so much shit and we had lost friends and family members and could have took a turn right or left that could have made us a statistic on the wrong side of the fence, you know, so that we've been able to make it through, although different journeys for Jack and I, but similar at the same time. We've been able to make it through. And again, second round picks who got cut and had to grind, uh, you know, both able to win championships. But then, you know, our second act, you know, we're seeing deals and getting situations like we were stars in the league. And like I said, we, we knew we were role players, important role players, but we were never like superstars or all stars. Although Jack should have probably been an all-star, but he got in that fight and politics came into it. But fuck that. But again, I think that because the way we move and how real we are. We've been getting these doors opened that normally don't happen to guys that kind of had our journey or our type of careers. You know, so we do feel it's important to not only speak on sports, but speak on social issues that may not get attention. And now more than ever, it's not so much about shut up and dribble. They tried to pull that shit. It didn't work because (laughs) we are, as Jack is, you know, led the biggest march our history's ever seen. We are advocates not only for social justice, for social equity. We we know we're big proponents in the cannabis space where we preach for people and, and help people get Funding in the cannabis space, we're in the social justice space, we're fathers, we're business owners, uh, we do philanthropy. I mean, there's so many facets to us that, you know, we'd feel like that obviously getting in this space, we were going to have to talk about sports, but we really want to talk about life because we're all affected by life. And uh, I think we've done a good job of doing that.
2: I'm with you. Couldn't have said it better. Last year or two, last four or five have been really tough. You know, I say it all the time. You know, I'm fortunate that I just get to learn about racism. You guys wake up black every day. I wake up white every day. And it's on all of us. If you got a platform and you're not trying to use it to help advance the agenda— then you're doing it wrong. That's my opinion. I love you guys for doing what you're doing, for real. Uh, Jack, you've been known to talk about your relationship with gangs and based on where you're from and the the world you knew. Uh, You're somebody that young men around the world look up to with your candor and your connection with a higher power. Uh, What is that change in your life like for you and the world around you?
5: Well, I'm a real one. Um, I didn't expect to wake up one morning and see some, the only person on this Earth that looked exactly like me getting murdered for the world to see. My life changed that day. One thing people don't know was that incident didn't catapult me into giving back. I had been giving back since 2016 with Rasheed going to, going to uh, Flint and giving water back, so I had already started that. But being that my brother was murdered and there was so many other murders by police that has been looked over and been swept under the rug, and the first thing they try to do is belittle the, the character of the person who's been murdered to make so they can validate what they did to him. And I wasn't going to let that happen to my twin. I was so hurt that I didn't know what to do, Rex. I just led with my heart. Something told me to go down there and stand for him because one thing I did know, out of all the people that had been murdered by police, none of them had a, the, one of the biggest podcasts in the world. None of them had an NBA champion as a twin and none of them had a voice like I had. So it was mandatory that I stand up for him. And it catapulted, like, I didn't ask to be the face of the biggest civil rights moves ever. People, I was put in that position by losing a friend. And to be honest, Rex, I have to say this. It's a lot of activists that hate that I'm the face of that because this is what they do. You know what I mean? And so I'm getting death threats from people that don't want equality. I'm getting hate from my own kind because they wish it was them. You know, it it was so much going on. Like, I, I was calling Matt, like, It was times where I was frustrated. The first two weeks of being in Minnesota, Rex, I didn't eat because I was up all day marching, uh, speaking, doing interviews, just trying to bring attention to this because I knew my brother had a past like we all do. And I knew they was going to try to bring that up to try to demean his character. So I knew he had a daughter and I was friends with his daughter's mother. And I knew that I had to get down there and speak for them and be there for them. And, um, I'm just happy that we were able to get justice. I'm happy that his death wasn't in vain and my work didn't go in vain. But I had to grow as a person because I didn't want to be a hypocrite, Rex. I wanted to lead by example. You know, I, and that's why I had to make these changes in my life, you know, for me to grow. Like Matt said earlier, we getting deals and we getting st- We got stuff going on that only star players in the NBA get. So in order for me to show God that I appreciate and I'm humble about everything he's blessing us with, I got to continue to grow and be a better person. And I know that I'm not not—I'm no different than nobody else, Rex. I'm no different than no other human being on this earth. But the blessings I have, I appreciate it. So the only reason I can show him I'm thankful is by continuing to grow, and that's what I'm doing.
2: Yes, you are. Remember, guys, when they're attacking you, you're winning. You're winning. When yeah. they're attacking you, yeah. you're winning. Matt, let's change gears for a second, talk about you for a second, Matt. Uh, How did summer 2020 change your life? and thinking about society the nba stepped up while in the bubble in orlando would you like to see more being done by the league and society at large
3: i think so you know this this social activism space and justice space i've kind of been in but kind of been in on the radar um because to me it wasn't about getting recognition for what i'm doing it was just about doing the work you know so i'm doing you know i I did the march for stefan clark who was shot 18 times by police in sacramento you know paid for, you know, me and my, me and Demarcus Cousins paid for the funeral, paid for a lot of different stuff, but it was never really about being recognized. We did it because we wanted to make a difference and, and we felt obligated to help our people. So, you know, when 2020 hit, it kind of just put everything under the magnifying glass. So when Jack was out there marching every day, I can see him, I'm calling him, I'm checking on him, telling him to eat, telling him to take a day off, telling him to take a deep breath, telling him to take relax, I'm proud of him, I love him. There was even points where he was pissed at me and wouldn't respond to me because I was on him so much, but I knew he needed to hear it. Even if he didn't respond, I knew he'd hear that. So when Jack is out there marching, I'm up in Sacramento at the Capitol, you know, working on policies, trying to change bills, getting bills passed, police procedure bills, um, help get AB 392, which is a police procedure bill that um, was put into law out here in California. So I was doing kind of the behind the scenes work and realizing that everyone has a place in this game. You know, Doc Rivers says, you know, be a star in your role. And that doesn't only mean on the court. That means in life. You know what I mean? So. Jack was out there marching. I'm trying to get policies passed. I'm going to fly and meet with Joe Biden before the election talking. He wants the black vote. What are you going to do for the black vote? You know, you helped this bill that has incarcerated more black people than anyone. So I'm out here asking hard questions and doing things because, again, I was trying to do my part. So, yes, happy that the NBA stepped up. and did something. This is something that Jack and I actually disagreed on and, and talked about because he didn't feel like the player should play. And he felt like, obviously, similar to Kyrie, where there's more important things to basketball. And I completely, a thousand percent agree with that. But at the same time, Rex, I felt like, um, individually, we have some big voices in LeBron and Chris, and you're going to hear those guys, whether they're playing or not. But I felt like, collectively, for our message to really get around the world, we needed that NBA logo behind it. So I was glad that the NBA and the players chose to play. I'm glad they took every single interview and opportunity to whether it was even just putting Black Lives Matter on the court, people might not think that does something, but the fact that a multi-billion dollar corporation, sporting corporation is doing that, it's a big deal. And the fact that the players continue to push and say people's names and get things done, understanding the power we have now. So I think... That 2020 experience united us and understood that, you know, and it's not only when I say us, it's not blacks. To me, it's us versus hate. So hate comes in every shape, form and color. So we understand that our allies may not be the same color to us and our family or friends may be on the opposite side because they have hate in them. So to me, it's everybody versus hate. But I love the people that came together together for one thing, which was love and equality and continuing to push the message. So, you know, Jack with his marching, me doing what I was doing, the NBA doing what we're doing. We're all continuing to push this message. And I feel like for the first time after 400 plus years of unequal footing that they're starting to listen. So now what, what is our strategy moving forward? You know, we understand that the power in our numbers, they call us minorities. And when I say minorities, it's everybody pretty much but white people. The only reason why they call us minorities is to keep us in our place. If we come together, we're actually the majority. We're actually, there's more of us than there is of them. And I kind of think that's what they fear. So I think we, we learned that when we come together, we can flip states. We can do things that we never thought was possible. We have people thinking that the election was rigged because so many people, the color of us, came out and actually voted for the first time. So there's power in numbers. I hope we continue to grow off that and learn from it. And again, it's not white versus black, black versus Asian, white versus it's not. It's love versus hate because, again, hate comes in all shapes, forms, and colors. And we have to eradicate that. We have to continue to call people on their bullshit. Some people may need to be slapped. You know what I mean? Some people feel comfortable saying crazy stuff in your face and it's not the days where we just have to take anymore so i'm not obviously condoning violence but sometimes violence it happens in the process but again the world is listening and what is going to be our message moving forward what is going to be our strategy moving forward because we fought we've rioted we've burned things down and that's got a little bit of attention but now that they're actually listening what are we going to do with our minds to help better not only us but better our kids futures
2: stevie i'm uh i got a feeling i know what the tears are about, but what are they about?
5: Yeah, it, it just, you know, hearing Matt talk, it just took me back to that place, man. Like, it was so many people, Rex, that was on my phone calling, you know, when the cameras was around or when the story was hot. You know what I mean? But and that's why I say I'm my brother's keeper, and that's why I love Matt so much, because those people are nowhere around now. I'm still doing the work. My tears are still here. And, uh... <laughs> And uh, to know how he was there for me and to know what I was going through at that moment. Um, for everybody that was around with the cameras and and, and and for him to still be here on my side, like, I appreciate that. And It just took me back to that spot, man. I, I um Just thinking about, you know, everything I was going through at that moment, man. But I just appreciate my brother so much, man. And, and like, the tears will never go away because I really lost a friend. My mama tell you, you know what I'm saying, if she even thought that was her son, her son at times when she saw him, that's how much we looked like. And uh, it just took me back to that place for a second, man. Well, you know, these tears are not fake. They real. So yeah. when, they, when I feel it, they come out.
2: Good. Good. Let them out. The horrifying murder of George Floyd happened and was broadcast on May 25th, 2020 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, after then police officer Derek Chauvin handcuffed, put face down in the street, and put his knee on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds, killing him while onlookers filmed, but were not allowed to intervene. This all occurred because George Floyd was suspected by a grocery store employee of using a counterfeit $20 bill. On June 25th, 2021, Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 years and six months after being convicted by a jury in April. May George Floyd rest in peace. May we all use our voices for justice and equality for all. I want to thank you for listening to part one of our part two series with Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson. Part two will air next Tuesday at 9 a.m., 6 a.m. Pacific for those who are subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. This is Charges. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Whether it's your first time betting,